Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Now, um, James Noonan from Yale University will present a talk entitled Uniquely Human Gene Regulation. So thanks to, to the organizers for inviting me to come and, and talk today. This has been a great meeting so far. Um, I'm going to follow up a bit of what Katie's been talking about, but look at it from a somewhat different perspective, uh, specifically the evolution of human morphology. So this is a cave painting from Chauvet Cave in France. It's about 30,000 years old. It's an outline of a human hand, and it illustrates several things, I think, that resonate for what we're all interested in here, which is, first, that's a hand. Okay, we use this to make tools. Second, whoever made this had the cognitive ability to conceive of making this image in the first place. Okay. And third, he's making an image of, if it's a him, he's making an image of his own hand. So clearly our fascination with what makes us different from other species goes back a very long way. So this is the fundamental question, as we've been discussing, is what makes us human. I like to show this picture because I think it hits pretty much right on the nose, what distinguishes humans from non-human apes. Uh, we managed to achieve something, in this case, that he has not been able to do. Okay, if we want, he wanted to go to the moon, he'd have to come with us. He's not getting there himself. <laughs> so as we've heard, it's about six to seven million years of evolutionary divergence between humans and, and chimpanzees. The genomes are very similar to each other. And what we're interested in is, un is really understanding what changes are important in the genome, and specifically, how do we find these? So we take the position in our lab that the way to think about this is to think about it from the perspective of embryonic development. So changes in the way that the hum humans actually develop are responsible for these sorts of high-level traits, tool use, cognition. Okay. So increases in brain size and complexity, changes in the morphology of the limbs. These enabled us to do these things. So to really understand how these sorts of changes evolved, we have to really study human embryonic development uh, as best we can. So this is a 54-day-old human embryo. Um, you can already see you've got the cortex developing, you've got hands, you've got feet. So these differences that we're seeing here, bipedalism particularly, is laid down pretty early. So how are these changes encoded in the genome? That's what we're interested in. So uh, quite some time ago now, 1975, uh, Mary Claire King and Alan Wilson first proposed this idea that maybe it wasn't all protein coding differences, that maybe it was differences in the way that genes are actually controlled that account for human-chimp physical differences. And if you think about it from a developmental perspective, this makes a lot of sense. Okay, so if you want to make an embryo, if you want to make a cortex, Really, what you need to do is to precisely control the way the genes are actually expressed in that structure. So the cortex, the limb, these are specified by very complex patterns of gene expression. So how does that work? Well, as Katie mentioned, regulatory switches in the genome are really controlling the expression of genes. That's something that we now understand pretty well. So if you want to express a gene, say, in the embryonic limb, the embryonic brain, there are sequences that actually direct expression. Okay, these are discrete sequences in the genome, um, termed enhancers, which is what I'm going to talk about for the rest of the time, 
Um, they recruit transcription factors. They act on particular genes. And particular enhancers will drive expression in particular structures. Okay, so this, in this case, this enhancer is driving expression of the limb. You can have another enhancer for the same gene. It's located somewhere else, uh, maybe further upstream from that gene. That's driving expression, in this case, in the developing midbrain. And by combinations of these different regulatory modules, you get a complete expression pattern and a developmental outcome. So we think that changes in the function of these enhancers may have altered development during human evolution. And the logic behind this is that if you, if you want to modify developmental processes, mutations in genes are really not the way to go. Because mutations in many developmental genes tend to be lethal. These genes are expressed in many places. They have a lot of jobs. If you knock out or modify the gene, it's gone everywhere, or potentially altered everywhere. That's not a very tolerable situation. But changes in particular regulatory elements, particular enhancers, those could alter gene expression in the embryo, producing a different expression pattern that produces a different developmental outcome, maybe changing the morphology of the brain in this case. So our interest is in identifying enhancers that have human-specific functions during development. There are several challenges to doing this. Um, first is identifying enhancers is inherently, is inherently difficult in the genome. We don't have an enhancer code. That's analogous to the genetic code. Uh, identifying enhancers that are likely to have human-specific activity is also difficult. And we need to really have rigorous experimental methods for defining human-specific enhancer function in an embryonic context. So one thing that helps us, as Katie mentioned, is that enhancers tend to be conserved across species. So if you look at genome sequences from many different evolutionarily divergent species, these sorts of regulatory sequences tend to be maintained over evolutionary time. And there are statistical and quantitative measures of this sequence conservation that we can imply to actually pick out these sequences from the genome. So the system that we use to really test whether or not a particular conserved sequence has developmental enhancer activity is a mouse transgenic assay. So the basic components of this assay are taking a sequence out of the human genome, hooking it up to a bacterial gene that makes an enzyme, which you can then stain blue, effectively, in the embryo, inject that DNA into a single-cell mouse egg, uh, a fertilized mouse embryo, put that back into a pseudo-pregnant foster mother, and then collect embryos and stain for the activity of this reporter. And the idea is that if your sequence can drive gene expression in particular places in the embryo at particular times, you can see that here. So this is driving expression in the cortex. Here's a sequence that does the same thing, another brain enhancer. So there's two things to keep in mind here um, that are often confused. What we're actually doing is we're testing the ability of a conserved human sequence to activate a reporter gene in a mouse embryo. Okay? These are not human embryos. Uh, the sequence enters the mouse genome in a random location, so we do many of these experiments in parallel. And if we see the same pattern over and over again, that suggests that this, the activity we're seeing is inherent to the sequence we put in. It's not an artifact of integration. So we wanted to, wanted to identify enhancers that have human-specific function. So the approach that we took um, back in 2006 was statistically similar to what Katie described, where we're looking at sequences that are highly conserved across many species, but have a lot of human-specific sequence changes in them. Um, so sequences are evolving rapidly. 
Now, here we're looking specifically for sequences that could be enhancers, so we ignored anything that had any evidence of transcription. And we call these human accelerated conserved non coding sequences, um, or HACNSs. I think it's safe to say that Katie picked a better name uh, than we did. <laughs> but this is what we got stuck with, so we're sticking with it. Uh, we identified 992 of these sequences in the genome. This is their distribution across chromosomes. Um, they're on every chromosome that we could actually do an analysis for. Uh, and we found that they tended to be near genes that are involved in brain development, particularly brain wiring, forming neuronal connections. So the hypothesis there is that potentially some of these are going to be enhancers that have human-specific functions in the brain. So here's one example. This is HACNS1. Again, the 1 is as for HAR1, um, simply because it's at the top of our list. Uh, it's in a gene called AGAP1 on chromosome 2. It's downstream of another gene called GBX2. This is a developmental transcription factor involved in brain development, among other things. Um, and this is the overall conservation profile between human and other species. There's a lot of blue here. All that really tells you is that it's very deeply conserved overall between human and many other species, except here, where there are all of these human-specific sequence changes. So if we look at that up close, we've got a short stretch of sequence here that's 81 base pairs long, and you can see in red, each place we have human has a sequence difference relative to all of these other species that are identical to each other. Okay, so chimp all the way down to chicken. So this is very surprising to see. We wouldn't expect to see that by chance, certainly not in something that's this deeply conserved. So this is a direct target for our experimental study. So this is what we do. We're using the same assay system I described uh, to identify HACNSs that function as enhancers. So to do this, we actually have a little schematic map of the mouse embryo, and we've divided it up into quadrants and zones based on anatomical structures. Um, we use a single developmental stage to do these experiments. This is 11-day-old mouse embryos. Um, this allows us to score expression patterns in a very rigorous way. And the basic experimental design is to take the human sequence, test it, score it, compare that to chimp, compare that to a rhesus sequence. And the idea is that if chimp and rhesus are the same and human is different in the activity, you have a human-specific function. So many HACNSs are enhancers. Uh, these are some of the ones that we've found. And wherever you see blue is where the reporter gene is active. Okay, so this is the cortex. Uh, this is in the midbrain. Uh, this is the hindbrain. This is in the branchial arch. This will eventually become your jaw and your mouth. Uh, but I'm going to talk mostly about this guy. Okay, so this is HACNS1. What you see here is expression, particularly in the, in the embryonic limbs. Um, in the anterior part of the limb. Uh, again, this is the branchial arch, this is the ear, this is the eye. So it's a very strong enhancer in all of these structures at this stage. So what we see when we compare the activity of the human sequence, okay, which is shown here, and I should say, each of these is an independent integration event into the mouse genome, each of these embryos. Okay, so that's one injection into a single cell mouse embryo. And you get the same pattern in each case. We compare that to chimpanzee, we see that the activity of the equivalent chimpanzee sequence is quite different. Uh, some aspects are the same, including some of the major domains, like the branchial arch. Uh, but what's most obviously different here is the limb. 
So there's an overall reduction in activity, but specifically in the limb bud, this very strong anterior expression we see in the limb is not present in chimp or in rhesus. We compare it to rhesus as an outgroup. So the conclusion that we come to when we see something like this is that this is the ancestral state, at least in old world monkeys, and human is derived. Something else that I'll come back to in a little bit is if you look at the face for these guys, you see expression here in the medial nasal process for rhesus and for chimp, but for the human sequence, you don't see that. So there's also been a loss of function that goes along with this gain of function. And we published this back in 2008 in Science. So coming back to those sequence changes that we identified in the element, we did a pretty simple synthetic assay, simply taking the chimpanzee sequence and humanizing it at these positions, doing the same experimental test on that humanized chimpanzee sequence. And what we found was that by putting these 13 changes back in to chimp, we get the human activity. If we take the human sequence and revert it back to chimp, or the ancestral state as inferred by chimpanzee, uh, we get what looks like the ancestral function. So these sequence changes, which we identified purely statistically, okay, not based on any kind of experiment at the beginning, these are directly responsible for this functional shift in the activity of this regulatory element. So what was really interesting to us when we looked a bit closer at what this enhancer is doing, now looking at 13-day-old mouse embryos, so two days later in mouse development, what we see is that the human sequence is driving expression specifically in digit one in the forelimb and the hind limb. So these are digital rays. These are the digits that are forming in the mouse. This is our enhancer activity. So the forelimb, obviously digit one turns into the thumb. The hind limb, digit one turns into the toe, the great toe. But from a getting to the point where you want to develop a hypothesis as to what these sorts of shifts in regulatory function might be doing, this is the system that we're looking at. So looking at the loss of craniofacial expression uh, between human and chimp, where we see that chimp has his expression in the medial nasal process and human has lost it. Well, one interesting aspect of human evolution has been changes in the shape of the face. So of course, chimps have this projection in craniofacial structure. We don't have that. Our faces are flat. So potentially loss here could also be accounting for something like this. Okay. So that's HAC and S1. Uh, we're looking at other HAC and Ss, and I can't really get into this in too much detail here, but another HAC and S enhancer shows human-specific loss of function in the embryonic cortex. So this is the human sequence driving expression in the developing mouse cortex. We see expression here in the medial part of the cortex. This is what the chimpanzee sequence does. Okay, this is the equivalent orthologous sequence of chimpanzee. And what we see in chimp is this expansion of this domain in different areas of the developing cortex and also overall increase in the strength of the enhancer. So a hypothesis we're developing around this is that this may have something to do either with an increase in brain size in human um, in that reducing, some paradoxical to think of it this way, but reducing the activity of an enhancer that, for instance, regulates a gene that promotes exit from the, from the cell cycle 
uh, in the brain may actually account for a change in, cell, in brain size, but also differences in different regions of the brain uh, between human and chimp. So as I said, I can't really get into that in too much detail, but this is something we're actively pursuing. So these are all hypotheses. We don't really know what these functional shifts are actually doing in the context of human evolution or biology. But the way we really want to approach that is as we would approach studying any other human, um, particular human sequence we're interested in from a genetic standpoint, which is we use the mouse. So all of these experiments I'm showing you, okay, keep in mind that this is simply taking a human sequence, putting it somewhere in the mouse genome, and seeing if it can activate gene expression of this reporter. Okay? That's not how you can model the biology, that this reads out a molecular function. What we want to do, and what we are doing, is actually take the equivalent mouse sequence and replace it with the human sequence. And because we're looking at sequences that are deeply conserved across species, this is a relatively straightforward experiment to do. Since we know exactly what the mouse sequence looks like, we know where we should actually target our sequence. And we have a hypothesis that in the ancestral state, the mouse will be a good model for whatever the ancestral state of the enhancer is. And by placing this human sequence in there, we create a humanized mouse. So if this particular, being very reductionist now in our approach, if this particular human-specific regulatory change actually has some impact on uh, morphology and particularly human-specific aspects of development, we'll be able to model that in the mouse. Okay, so I just want to sum up uh, by giving you kind of an overview of, of our lot, the way we approach this problem, and I think the way that being able to compare genomes and do the sort of statistical analyses that Katie described um, can be leveraged to really get functional insights into what makes humans distinct from other species at the molecular level. So we start with maps of human-specific sequence change, which we now have. And what's critical is to translate these sorts of maps into functional insights. So in our case, looking at human-specific enhancer functions, looking for enhancers that have human-specific developmental activities. And then translate that in an experimental system to really understand if any of these particular changes in the genome, any of these discrete, kind of low-level molecular changes, um, result in human-specific changes in development. And the best way, really the, the classic way to do that, is to use the mouse and ask, can we humanize mouse development using these sequences? So with that, I'd just like to acknowledge people that have done the work. Um, my lab has grown in the few years I've been at Yale. Uh, most of the mouse work is done by Heather Adonhoffi and Sham Schultes. Um, our transgenics are made um, in collaboration with our animal genomic service at Yale, Carol Peace and Tim Natoli. We're working on our, the brain enhancer I described um, with Pascal Rakish in neurobiology. And the initial statistical analyses I described, the definition of an HACNS was something that uh, arose from a collaboration between myself and Shyam Prabhakar, who's now at the Genome Institute of Singapore. And these are our funding sources. Thanks.
move on now to the next speaker, Yoav Galad from the University of Chicago. The title of his presentation is Comparing Immune Response Pathways in Primates. Uh, thank you very much for uh, the invitation to speak in this uh, session. Like uh, Jim and Katie, uh, my lab is interested in uh, gene regulatory processes that underlie human-specific traits. And uh, I can use their uh, uh, two presentations as a uh, great introduction to the uh, topic I will be talking about, namely the fact that you might use variation and changes in gene regulatory states across species to try and explain important phenotypes, and in particular, human-specific phenotypes. There have been actually many other systems that use the same rationale to explain variation in ultimate physiological or morphological phenotypes in nature in a wide variety of species from uh, butterflies and, and different populations of fish. This is a stickleback fish, uh, wing pigmentation in Drosophila, yeast, and, and even uh, Darwin finches, uh, the origin of, of uh, the observation of uh, uh, the process of evolution that underlies variation. In particular, in human, there are uh, different examples where gene regulatory processes underlie human-specific traits, and you've heard some of these talks just now, and, and these are also the, some of the examples that I have from uh, Katie and, uh, and Jim, among others. And what I'll be talking about today is actually taking you a little bit back to a genomic view uh, and trying to understand the differences in gene regulatory uh, phenotypes that have something to do with immune response or differences in immune response across species. And the reason, the motivation for this study is the observation that among some of the uh, very obvious differences between humans and our uh, uh, extant, closely extant evolutionary relatives, the, the non-human apes, there are also differences in susceptibility to diseases, and in particular, differences in susceptibility to infectious diseases and immune-related diseases. And this is a, a partialist from a relatively uh, uh, old now uh, review that uh, Ajit was, was a co-author on. And so we would like to perform a comparison of the immune response across species. We would like to understand uh, what are the differences in immune response between species are and whether we can use these differences to try and understand why different species, in particular humans, are, have differences in susceptibility to uh, disease. And so we only take first, uh, this, in this uh, uh, presentation, I'll only tell you about first steps towards addressing this problem. It's a complicated problem, and, and uh, this is just uh, the beginning of, of our uh, characterization of these differences. And we begin by focusing on one aspect of the innate immune response, and these are particular pathways that are mediated by one immune response receptor that's called toll-like receptor 4. Now, I don't need you to understand the entire regulatory pathway that is involved in this immune response in order to uh, appreciate the next uh, part of the talk. What I do want you to take uh, from this slide is just the fact that we know a lot about immune response. So people have been studied immune response and the immune system in humans, in mice, in other organisms for three, four decades now with respect to the molecular response. And we know a lot about the connections and the networks and the connectivity and the regulatory responses and changes 
uh, uh, that are involved in immune response to different stimuli and, and different infections. And so when we focus on a particular pathway or, or particular mediated pathways, uh, we can leverage a lot of this existing knowledge to focus on changes that are really relevant and well understood in the context of global immune response in, in humans. The, the receptors that we chose to work with or use uh, treatment that will stimulate is a particular receptor that mediates both general response as well as response to particular viruses or bacteria. And the way we stimulated it is by, once again, we, this is a genomic approach. We can use all these technologies you've heard about, the sequencing, the microarrays, to look at regulatory changes across the entire genome. And the way we stimulated the, res, the res, immune response is by using synthetic ligand uh, molecule that's called LPS, which uh, is part of bacteria. And when you treat uh, immune-related cells that we can draw from blood samples, with this uh, molecule, with the synthetic ligand, the LPS, you uh, stimulate an immune response in the cell, and you can measure that immune response in different ways, including by looking at the gene regulatory processes following the stimulation, for example, at a time course for 12 and 24 hours after the stimulation. So our particular study design is to take samples, blood samples from humans, chimpanzees, and rhesus macaques as outgroup old world monkey, and uh, we took samples from six individuals from each of these species. And once again, this, as other speakers noted, these samples are taken using uh, routine checkups. We don't really do any experiments on animals. It's a simple blood test. And then we can take primary cells from the blood samples and stimulate them with LPS and simply compare the immune response, immune regulatory response, following the treatment to cells that were not stimulated. So uh, we are uh, collecting RNA from these cells that were stimulated and non-stimulated, and we're looking at the gene expression level across all the genes in the genome in all these samples. And the first thing we see uh, when we look at correlation of gene expression patterns across samples is that the human gene expression levels are more similar to gene expression levels in other humans, and same is true for chimpanzees and rhesus. So the gene expression patterns cluster by species, and the species cluster according to the phylogenetic tree, the non-phylogenetic relationship between the species, so the human and chimpanzees are more closely related than the rhesus. This is really just used as a quality control sanity check to make sure that uh, our data makes sense. One aspect of this figure that it's difficult for you to see is that stimulated cells have an expression profile that is more similar uh, to each other than to non-stimulated cells. And that, of course, also makes sense. Stimulation is uh, an enormous perturbation that uh, changed the entire immune response related to regulatory networks. Once we know that the quality of the data is high, we can start uh, identifying or classifying those genes whose regulation was affected by this treatment, by the immune stimulation, and simply uh, make long lists of genes that were affected by the stimulation at four hours, at 24 hours, at, at, at 12 hours, and conduct this experiment in each of the species. So perform uh, uh, this classification separately in each of the species, and then we can put it all together and ask how many of these pathways always respond regardless of the species, and how many of these pathways respond only in one or two of the species. And this is really where it gets interesting. 
So we see that most of the genes that respond to the immune stimulation respond in all the species, or at least in two of the species. There's a, it's a very conserved mechanism. It's the innate immune response. Uh, all mammals have it. Many non-mammals also have it. And we expect it to be a, a highly conserved process. But we also see species-specific responses to this stimulation. And of course, this is where it becomes interesting. We would like to know what type of genes respond only in humans, only in chimpanzees, and whether we can use that to explain a little bit uh, uh, the differences in susceptibility to disease between the species and some other human species-specific processes. Uh, we do that by starting to ask questions about the genes we classify as differentially expressed. What are they doing? What's already known about them? What type of processes and phenotypes they underlie? And here we, as I mentioned, can leverage the enormous amount of knowledge on immune response pathways. It's a very well-studied uh, uh, biological process. And we can start seeing, and this is, for example, among the common uh, or conserved immune response pathways, that there are a lot of genes known to participate in immune uh, regulatory pathway, in cytokine secretion, in uh, T-cell acting genes, uh, anti-apoptotic genes, a lot of the classically immune response pathways, as well as when we look at the uh, modes of regulation of these genes, we found that they have regulatory elements for transcription factors that are known to be central in mediated, mediating immune response. So once again, this, this slide didn't really tell us anything new. It established that what we see, our observations, make sense in light of what's already known about immune response. And, and now we can start looking at, at differences, uh, uh, having this confidence that what we see really is related to a phenotype, and ask, can we tell anything new about immune response differences? And in the first of those slides, I will use a classification of different types of immune response from, from independent work that uh, look for immune response that is either general and that was interpreted as perhaps uh, uh, alarm signal for, for infection. So it doesn't really matter why the body is infected. The first general signals are the, the alarm signature. Uh, there's a problem, and immune response needs to be triggered. Uh, and we'll call that the universal response. To response that is specific to different type of microorganisms, say a viral infection or bacterial infection. So again, there's a lot of work done on this, and so we, we can have these different types of uh, response highly characterized, and we know which genes belong to different response. And so that would be on the x-axis. And then on the y-axis, I'm showing you the proportion of genes that responded to the immune stimuli in all three species, in just two species, or, or just one species. And so what should be generally apparent from this uh, picture is that we have this high proportion of genes that responded in all species among the universal response. And then we have a lower proportion of this blue section among uh, genes that respond specifically to viral or bacterial infection. We can look at it from a slightly different perspective, and that might be clearer. If we now look at genes that responded in all three species or genes that responded in only one species on the x-axis, so now the, the x-axis is just the difference between how specific the response is, and this time the colors on the right-hand side distinguish between genes that are universally responding or genes that respond to bacterial or viral infection only. So, so that classification now is expressed in the different colors. And so it's very clear from, from uh, this way of presenting the data that when you're talking about res immune response that is species-specific, 
we have a very large enrichment of bacterial and in particular viral response genes. And that makes sense because the uh, evolution of uh, the, the race of evolution of uh, host and pathogen uh, responses and, and, and new developments is fastest with viruses that can evolve much faster. And, and we see that the genes that participate in the virus responses really do evolve much faster in a species-specific way than, for example, the genes that participate in the universal response. These are, these are again, the general alarm signals. Uh, they're not necessarily specific to a particular bacteria, and they participate uh, in, in, in response in all these three species. Another interesting aspect of, the, uh, of studying this immune response in a comparative way, and I'm not sure we would have been able to see it unless uh, in any other way if we didn't have comparative data, is the fact that sometimes the immune response is a matter of reaching the right regulatory state, not necessarily changing a gene regulatory level. And, and this slide expresses it. The, the y-axis here is simply a relative expression level. The numbers don't really matter. If it's high on the y-axis, it's high expression level, and if it's low on the y-axis, it's low expression level. And what you see here on the x-axis is, in this case, the 4, the 12, and the 24 hours, the expression levels of the non-stimulated cells and the expression levels of the immune response stimulated cells. And each of these dots and data points here is, is the mean and standard deviation of expression level for a particular gene in the non-stimulated stimulated, in the humans, chimpanzees, and rhesus macaques. So we have, we have uh, uh, six panels here. And what you see in all these panels is conversion of the expression level following the stimulation, whereby before the stimulation, the expression levels across the species was highly variable. And this demonstrates the fact that sometimes following infection, it's not about changing the expression level, it's, by, it's about reaching the actual state of expression that best addresses the uh, immune response. So in this particular case, if you are a human or a rhesus macaque, you probably do need to change some the regulatory, uh, the expression level of this gene following the infection because this is the favored state. But if you happen to be the chimpanzee, you already were in the favored state and, and not a lot of gene expression difference is needed. And this, this actually uh, uh, brings up a slightly different aspect of comparative genomics. It's not only about looking at differences in their response across species. It's a lot of the time developing an understanding of what is the optimal state you need to reach, and not necessarily about moving to that state if you're already there. Having that understanding, you can start looking at networks of interactions and networks of gene regulation because you appreciate the fact that it's about the state of the network and not just whether gene regulatory uh, phenotypes have changed following the uh, treatment. So this is one of the human-specific regulatory networks of genes that either responded specifically in the human lineage or other genes that just uh, reached a particular state that was favorable uh, following the stimulation. And in this case, what's, what's unusual about this network of interaction, and for those of you who are not used to see that, every ball here represents a gene, this is a gene name, and every line here represents an interaction, a known confirmed interaction uh, between the two genes or two proteins in a cell. And there is an overrepresentation in this uh, network for genes that are involved in cancer and for genes that are involved in apoptosis. So this is an immune response specific to human of a lot of genes that are involved in cancer biology. 
And now there are a lot of anecdotal evidence, and, and you could have seen it quickly from the uh, couple of introductory slides I showed you. There are a lot of anecdotal evidence that cancer affects humans perhaps differently than it affects some non-human uh, apes. And so, uh, and of course, immune response is a, is a very large player in, in tumor development and cancer biology. And so that gives us maybe the first hints towards phenotypes that are relevant and might explain human-specific susceptibilities. We can play this game with, with uh, chimpanzee and rhesus macaque data. We are human-centric, but this is a comparative genomic approach that allows us to ask these questions about the other species. And these are uh, similar networks, except in this, in this time, the modules are not based on known interaction between genes for the simple reason that being human-centric, we haven't collected much data as a community on uh, regulatory networks in non-human primates. But so this time, instead of looking for confirmed regulatory interactions, we look at co-expression networks, which is simply saying we use our own data to ask whether the state of the regulatory network has changed uh, from non-stimulated to stimulated. Uh, and we can, again, play the same game of asking whether we understand any biological coherence to these regulatory networks that, that have changed. But let's go back to human because we are human-centric and try to bring it back to disease and ask whether we can gain any insight from comparative genomics of immune response into a human disease. And in the first uh, of those results, the first slide I'll show you on the y-axis, the proportion of disease-associated genes. So these are genes that were previously associated with human uh, disease that is related to immune response in, in some way. So either because they're infectious diseases and we know something about uh, the genetic basis for variability and susceptibility to them, or because they're uh, clearly immune-related genes such as uh, uh, autoimmune. And then in the different colors, I'm showing you either all the genes in that for which we got data or obtained data in our study, or the genes that responded only in human, only in chimpanzee, or only in rhesus macaque to the immune-related stimulation. And as you can see, we have the highest proportion of human-specific response genes among genes that are uh, related to uh, human diseases. And I'm sure that if we had a good database of uh, genes that are involved in chimpanzee-specific diseases and in rhesus-specific diseases, I could have drawn the same plot and, and showing you that the blue would have, would have been higher in the rhesus-specific diseases and so on and so forth, because it makes sense these immune response processes are related and probably underlying part the species-specific susceptibility. In one, uh, but we don't have this data for the other species. We, we don't really collect a lot of data on association studies in chimpanzees and, and rhesus macaques. But one example we do have, and this, is, this has to do with progression to AIDS following infection with HIV or SIV. As you probably all know, HIV uh, and AIDS are studied uh, uh, primarily in, in rhesus macaques and, and other non-human primates. And we have known for quite some time that one of the differences between uh, animals is in their susceptibility to progression to AIDS following the infection with SIV. And in particular, humans and uh, rhesus macaque progress to a, uh, AIDS pretty rapidly after infection with uh, SIV or, a, or HIV, and chimpanzees don't progress that easily. There are a couple of conflicting reports, but by and large, chimpanzees are pretty resistant. So you can infect them with SIV, and they almost never progress. And what I'm showing you here is that among genes that are known to participate in host interaction with HIV and SIV, 
we have a higher proportion of genes that are known that, that in our study have responded to immune stimulation specifically in chimpanzee. So that is very intriguing. Uh, clearly, we, the immune response has something to do with uh, 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 the rates and variation in progression to AIDS after infection with SIV. And this study, of course, did not infect any animal or blood cells with, with SIV or HIV. It was simply a synthetic ligand that we used for the infection. And nevertheless, it's easy to assume that these results reflect some regulatory networks and state in the uh, chimpanzee immune response that is related to this difference in phenotypes between the species. So I'm going to leave you with this uh, uh, example that certainly suggests that we can uh, use this approach to learn more about the genetic uh, basis for differences between species in susceptibility to disease and finish by uh, give credit to all my people, the people in the lab that actually do this work, and in particular, Luis, uh, who was a postdoc in the lab and now has an independent position in Montreal, who did much of the immune response work, and our collaborator, Jonathan, Matthew, and John, who, are computa who provide computational and statistical support for all these studies. No uh, babies were uh, harmed during the photographing of the pictures, uh, including my daughter. Thank you. I'm pleased to announce my co-chair, Dr. Ajit Varki, who's the uh, CARTA co-director and is a faculty member at UCSD, uh, to talk about human-specific changes in SIGLEC genes. Thank you, Elaine. So I'd like to give you an overview of some work we've been doing in the last couple of decades, which has culminated in looking at one specific area of uh, biology in relation to genes, and this is human-specific changes in SIGLEC genes. But in order to put this in perspective, I'm going to really give you a rather broad overview of the system I'm studying, and then really not going to give you a lot of details. In some slides, I'll have some, some details, which are for the aficionados, but if you just look at the titles of each slide, they basically summarize what the slide shows. So all cells in nature are covered with a dense coating of sugar chains or glycans. This would be an electron micrograph of a human lymphocyte, and you can see that this thick layer of sugar chains is coating all cell surfaces. This is true of every cell in your body. Now, if we were to zoom in there, we now know the structure of a lot of these different types of sugar chains. And what we find is that sialic acids decorate most cell surface and secreted molecules of all vertebrate cells sitting out on the tips here. So what do sialic acids do? They've been around in the since the deuterostome lineage of animals emerged in the Cambrian expansion, and they have many biological roles ranging from neuroplasticity to glomerular filtration to a variety of other physical roles. Given their location, they're also the obvious target for every pathogen that approaches us. So influenza, malaria, cholera, et cetera, the list would go off the screen if I completed it. If that were the sole purpose of sialic acids, you would not have kept them for 500 million years. And if you take out sialic acids in a mouse, you have an early embryonic lethal. And this may be because we and others have found a variety of receptors required to re recognize sialic acid that are intrinsic to the system. The situation gets complicated because a wide variety of very successful pathogens come in coated with sialic acid, sort of a Klingon coating device to look like us, and are very successful in invading us. So if we look across the bottom of the screen, you can imagine 500 million years of an evolutionary arms race. If you have sialic acids, you're probably going to die. If you don't have sialic acids, you are going to die. 
So uh, sialic acids, therefore, have been rapidly evolving. And we have uh, got recent data suggesting that in this system, of course, this is recognition of non-self. The pathogens are recognizing us, so we are recognizing the pathogens. But that the sialic acid is also involved in intrinsic recognition of self. So if this were a cell, and these were all the different parts of the cell, the nucleus, the Golgi, the lysosome, and here's an adjacent cell, and here's the plasma membrane of the cell. Say, so how many genes are involved in all of mammalian sialic acid biology? We went through this after the chimpanzee genome and came up with a picture like this, very complicated, lots of different genes. These are all gene names doing different things. But I can simplify all of this by saying that there's six genes involved in producing sialic acids. There are two genes involved in the activation and transport, 20 to transfer them onto things, five to modify them further, 25 to recognize them, and six to turn over and recycle them. So really, less than 70 genes are involved in sialic acid biology. And what has happened over the years is we have discovered multiple human-specific changes involving sialic acid biology. These range from every kind of gene modification you've heard about today. Gene inactivations, gene deletions, functional changes, expression changes, presence of null alleles, and so on. And so this is our published list to date, about 12 genes, and actually the total list now is about 15. So the obvious question you may ask, are we like the drunk searching for his keys under the lamppost. Why is he looking in the lamppost? Because that's where the light is. Actually, his keys are lying somewhere over here. So uh, we are always concerned about this, and to the extent possible, we have been looking at these, the same family of genes in, or related genes in these other taxa. And I can tell you so far that while the system is rapidly evolving in many, many taxa, we've only found a limited number of genetic changes here. So we'd like to think that sialic acid-related genes are a hot spot in human evolution, one of the many places where there's been a lot of dramatic changes. So this story really began because we were many years ago looking at two major kinds of sialic acids in mammalian cells, and the fact that one was missing in humans. And don't worry about the structure. One is called AC, the other is called GC, and they differ by a single oxygen atom. And basically we found what at that time was the first known genetic difference between humans and apes, that humans were missing this mutation, uh, this gene, the CMA gene, and therefore could not convert AC to GC. So we were sort of like a knockout mouse with a single gene deleted. So recently we've been trying to put together a sort of an evolutionary synthesis, if you will, of all these different findings, and re reproducing or reconstructing evolution is very difficult, in fact, practically impossible. So all you can do is make up a a reasonable hypothesis for what might be going on. And if you imagine a common ancestor with a chimpanzee in which there was both AC and GC, uh, we went, underwent some selection. We think it was a form of malaria and uh, ended up with an excess of AC and no GC. And perhaps also in relation to influenza, we're not really sure. We also changed another gene called ST6GAL1. The bottom line is we have very different pathogen regimes related to these types of situations. So now I want to come back to uh, the other aspect, which is SIGLEX, which is the main theme here. So these are the molecules that are proteins that are recognizing sialic acid either on the same cell surface or adjacent cell surfaces. So here is a, genetic, a generic SIGLEC, a typical SIGLEC molecule. Here's the outside of the cell, the inside is a cell membrane, extracellular Ig-like domains, intracellular signaling motifs, and here's where you recognize sialic acids. So these are found on many cell types, but often cells of bone marrow origin. As you probably know, the stem cell in the bone marrow emerges, uh, uh, develops into a variety of other cell types, which eventually develop into various cell types that end up in your blood. 
and then eventually some differentiate and end up in various tissues, including the brain and the, tissue, uh, and the immune system and so on. If you look at the distribution of these SIGLEX among these uh, cell types, this is a partially uh, worked out system right now. We know that these SIGLEX are expressed in various different places. And everywhere in red are human-specific changes from the great apes. So here's a closer look at the SIGLEX. There's some conserved ones, four of them that are present from uh, in all, or, or at least all mammals, which I won't go into as much. We're focused on the subset called CD33-related SIGLEX, which are rapidly evolving in all taxa, particularly in humans. And so we and others have been able to clone most of these. And we think we found almost the last one in the genome. And what we found is that the inhibitory CD30-related SIGLEX are involved in recognition of self by innate immune cells. So in other words, here's a SIGLEX which has an inhibitory motif. Don't worry about the details in the cytosolic tail. And what happens is this is an immune cell. It sees sialic acid. It says, well, that's self. That's me. So it sends a negative signal and makes sure that the cell doesn't get too excited. So now, looking through these SIGLEX, we have now found human-specific changes in all of these SIGLEX. When I mean human-specific, I mean that humans are specifically different from chimpanzees who are similar to gorillas, orangutans, and so on. And so it seems unlikely that lightning would strike so many places in the same place, so we've decided to pursue this further. So trying to put this together, we have come across one finding a few years ago that many of our inhibitory SIGLEX in the chimpanzee common, or the common ancestor of humans and chimpanzees and gorillas recognize the GC sialic acid. So when we lost GC by whatever selection might have occurred, we would have ended up with a funny state where we couldn't recognize ourselves. Our immune cells could not recognize ourselves. This would not have been a good situation, probably something we were forced into. Be that as it may, if we now look at uh, the SIGLEX of humans and look at this amino terminal V-set domain that recognizes sialic acid, it's undergone rapid evolution and now binds AC. So we have gone through, we believe, a transition here, and we may be still in the middle of it. So now the further complication comes with these molecular mimicry events, these pathogens that coat themselves with sialic acid. And many pathogens express surface sialic acid, but only NU5AC, not NU5GC. So in other words, we throw away the one thing that distinguished us from all the bacteria. And, but many, many pathogens can reinvent NU5AC by multiple pathways that I won't go into. It's very easy for them to do. And they've done it by every way you can think of. Don't worry about the details here. Any trick you can think of to cover yourself with NU5AC, some pathogen has done it. So this must be a very powerful convergent evolution process. And interestingly, many of these are obligate human pathogens or commensals. These, these are bugs that infect only, only humans and not even chimpanzees. So what might be going on there? Well, working with Victor Nizay and some of our colleagues, uh, we go from thinking of this system of having a homeostasis where the sialic acid being recognized and shutting off genes well, if you're a pathogen, that's really nice. You come in expressing sialic acid with your Klingon cloaking device and look like, look like uh, uh, the human. And in fact, that's what happens. We find that a sialic acid expressing pathogen can shut off the immune response against the kind of things that uh, you have Gilad mentioned against TLRs and so on. So we can block that. So we believe the next stage that, that happened was these new five expressing pathogens emerged, converged on humans, and hijacked our SIGLEX. 
and de developed new pathogen regimes that are specific to humans. And various other changes occurred in the, in the lymphoid system, in uh, epithelium, in the brain, so on. I'm not going to go into the details that we think are connected to these events. So now, what are you going to do if you're under attack by these Klingons with their cloaking devices? Well, you've got to retreat. And so what seems to have happened is humans have inhibited and downregulated these inhibitory siglex. So here's a figure from some years ago where here's a human blood cells uh, collected from, during, uh, from volunteers where there's not much siglex uh, on the T lymphocytes, whereas chimpanzees have a lot of these, as do gorillas and, and bonobos. And so John Cohen, writing about our work here, suggested maybe human T cells have lost their breaks, and we had some evidence for this. And more recently, Paula Soto and Lance Stein have shown that, in, that confirmed that human lymphocytes show much greater proliferative response than chimpanzees to multiple different stimuli. And so far, our only explanation so far has been reduced inhibitory siglex, and we're working further on that. Be that as it may, we seem to have a trigger-happy immune system. And here I'm showing that from Nancy Hattada-Ziola that bonobos and gorillas are similar to chimpanzees in having a lot more siglex. This is a, a method called flow cytometry. Okay, so now what you're going to do, these bugs are taking advantage of you. Well, uh, we always have a comeback, right? And it turns out that some, some siglex we more recently discovered do the opposite. They see the same thing but give the opposite response. So you're going to come and fool me this way? I'm going to fight back with an activatory siglex. And here we have these activatory siglex. Again, don't worry about the details. This is a negative signal. This is a positive signal, basically. And so it turns out that what's happening is there are two cases we found where siglex 5 and 14 and siglex 11 and 16, where the business end of these molecules that recognize the sialic acid is kept the same by a process called called gene conversion, in this case, concerted evolution. So these sequences are constantly pasting themselves on top of each other. These genes are next to each other. I'm showing you here the proteins. So that the, fr the front end stays the same and the back end is completely different. And these are found on the right types of cells. And 11 and 16 are particularly interesting because they're only found in the human brain, in the microglia, not in a chimpanzee brain. So what we think happened is the inhibitory siglex were downregulated, the activatory siglex were upregulated in response to this process. And, but eventually, too much of a good thing uh, is not good uh, in terms of activation. And as you probably know, too much of an activation is going to get you in trouble too. So now it turns out that several events have occurred in which humans have lost several of these siglex. So in fact, humans have deleted or partially deleted, in some cases completely in humans. Some cases, some of you have them, some of you don't. And we have some relationship to diseases. And we think we're still in the middle of some sort of balancing selection uh, for all these different genes, especially the ones that have changed more recently. And they range in expression patterns, not only in the uh, immune system, but in the brain, the placenta, the ovary, and all sorts of interesting places where humans have unique changes. I don't have time to go into each of these genes. But finally, I, I want to say that uh, this may relate to the fact that, as already mentioned, these apparent differences between humans and great apes in the incidence and severity of biomedical conditions. I'm not talking about diseases caused by the fact that we stand up straight. That's anatomical differences. If you're actually interested, this review just came out. We collaborated with some primate centers and updated all of these things. And you probably can't read this there, so I'll just tell you that this ranges from things like coronary thrombosis, the commonest cause of death in Western civilization, 
Uh, there's only been one great ape who's ever died of anything like that. Thalsipur and malaria, the big killer of humans, uh, does not really infect apes. All of the bacterial sexually transmitted diseases that, that are common in humans don't occur in apes. They get completely different diseases that I won't go into. And probable differences include hepatitis complications, Alzheimer's pathology, carcinomas mentioned earlier, a disease called preeclampsia that uh, is a plague for, for uh, pregnancy. And then there are some possible differences, and these are anecdotal, but the fact is uh, I've never met a veterinarian who's met or seen a great ape who's had bronchial asthma or rheumatoid arthritis. And that's quite striking given uh, the frequency of these diseases. And I already mentioned is our tendency to have early fetal loss, which also seems to be very rare in these apes. So for what it's worth, uh, not that I'm claiming that we have found the answer to any of these, we do have a lot of hypotheses related to siglex and sialic acids that we can ask questions here. So we do have a lot of testable hypotheses. And uh, so I, in this talk, uh, is given that this is a purpose of a broad overview, I'm not talking about the specific genes. And, uh, but in many cases, we have clues that we're following up, as I said, in many tissues where unusual changes have happened in humans, including the placenta, the brain, the ovary, uh, the epithelial surfaces, and so on and so forth. So I'll leave you with the, my suggestion that sialic acid-related genes are a hot spot in human evolution. I'll tell you that we have three more genes, I'm not yet ready to talk about them, that have shown human-specific changes. So it appears that the mutational load in this uh, area is uh, quite substantial. But of course, we have to keep searching here to make sure that many of these changes we find are uniquely human. But I think we've stumbled upon a system that may have been part of, uh, of uh, if, if nothing else, the scars of our evolution. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.